Thank you, Paul. Paul's one of our elders. In fact, he's the head honcho. He tells me what to do. He tells me what to preach on every Sunday. Now he's a great leader. Okay, before we get into it, how many visitors do we have here? Let me see. Yeah, look at that. Wow. Normally this time of the year, it's declining, not going the other way. You guys are trying to escape the heat, aren't you? Come up here. Well, just hang around till Tuesday. You'll avoid the heat. (laughs) Good old Summit County. Normally, this is our last Sunday. If we were at the amphitheater on a normal year, this would be our last Sunday. And we'd be planning, we'd be hosting a potluck afterwards. But we're not going to do that because we're going to keep going on and on and on as long as we can out here. As long as God provides us this kind of weather, why not? This is too beautiful, right? Okay, so we are in a series all summer, uh, a different kind of faith. And I've, I've tried to use the metaphor over and over again of picture a God, the one true living God, the God that we worship, offering, reaching down with an open hand and extending to us a gift. But also at the same time, he's inviting us into something, a relationship where that gift is worth something. It's valuable, it's, it's intimate, it's personal, it's life-giving. But it doesn't stop there. Whatever gift he gives us is meant to be shared, shared with the rest of the world. So that's kind of the picture. So today we're going to talk about marriage. And in two weeks, we're going to talk about singles. How many, I had some singles come up to me recently and say, would I do a sermon on singles? And I said, absolutely. That's called a gift, actually, in the scriptures. You know, most people don't think of marriage and singles both as a gift that God has given us to be shared. They both have something to offer the church and the world. And we're going to talk about that. Many years ago, I was uh, asked to perform a marriage. Married two people. I knew the uh, bride because she had been a student of mine a long time ago. Um, And during her time in the classroom, she had gone through a divorce and I had kind of pastored her through that. Uh, There was a lot of complicating factors, but she, she ended up getting a divorce. So she asked me to marry her and her husband, her new husband, her fiance. Now, this was many years after that. She'd gone through counseling and all the process that you go through to restore when the marriage doesn't work out. And so um, I went down, I went and met with them and discovered that they were, uh, they were living together, which I didn't know. Now that's the last, one of the last things you want to see as a pastor. Okay, just be honest with you. So I didn't say anything because my goal was to meet the, the, her fiance and the word on the street was no one was really sure about his faith. And so um, we had a great time. Nancy and I went and had dinner with them. And so the next week, I invited them over to my house. And we were sitting on the back deck. And uh, sometimes, a lot of times, Nancy's involved with me when I do premarital counseling. And I told her, this time, uh, you probably should be gone. Because we're going to have the conversation about what's going on in their relationship. So she's like, gladly. <laughs> so she goes shopping or something. So we sat down and I said, all right. Um, last week when I was at your house, I realized that you guys were living together. I said, were you sleeping together too? And they said, well, yeah. 
I said, okay. Hmm. I said, so that kind of presents to me a challenge, a conundrum. If I don't say something, I'm going to violate my own conscience as a theologian, as an ordained minister. But if I'm not careful, I'm going to wreck something that God is doing that's really good. So I decided the best thing to do is just to invite you into the conversation and let's talk about this, what's going on. And so he said, what's wrong with us sleeping together? Isn't that a great question? Every person should ask that question. We're going to talk about that actually this morning. What's wrong with that? And I said, well, before I answer the question, let me ask you. um, I asked her, why is it you want me to marry you? And she said, well, I go to a mega church. I don't even know the pastors. You've been a pastor to me for years. And I said, so you're looking maybe at a Christian marriage. And she said, yes. And I said, okay, so what makes a Christian marriage Christian? And she said, "Uh, well, you make a uh, lifelong commitment. I said, well, you already broke your first commitment. And she started to cry. I said, doesn't the world do that? That's not what makes a marriage Christian. And I asked him, so how about you? How come you want me to marry you? He goes, she wants you. It's a great, perfect, honesty. And I said, so let me take a few moments and talk to you about what actually makes a marriage Christian. And as I explained it to them, her tears started to flow and his eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger. When he got done, um, he looked at her and he said, I am so sorry. I had no idea what a Christian marriage really was. And I looked at him because I'd heard the word on the street. And I said, so do you, uh, are you willing to call yourself a Christian, a believer in Jesus? He goes, I am now. Now that I understand. In fact, I want you to share this at our wedding. He looked at her and he said, I'm moving out until we get married. Now that I know, I'm going to move out. And, I, and so we get to the wedding day and I said, you still want me to share it? And he goes, absolutely. I have a lot of friends coming that have no inkling what you're about to say. So that kind of got me interested. So I wrote a letter to a bunch of my former students, an email, and said, how many of you can define what a Christian marriage was? It stunned me that that was the answer. Zero. Somehow, we have a big gap. So I went down to Denver Seminary, one of the biggest libraries in the country, and I looked up books on the theology of a Christian marriage, and there were this many. This many. All very old. But there were 30 linear feet on how-to marriage. And it's like, what happened in our culture that we lost our understanding of what a Christian marriage is. What actually makes a marriage Christian? What happened? It's gone. So ever since I discovered that, every time I do premarital counseling, in fact, I'm doing a wedding in two weeks, two weeks, and um, we spend our time sorting that through, and their eyes light up with excitement when they begin to see the difference. You see, marriage is a gift. It's a gift. Paul read Ephesians 5, and that's a quote from Genesis 2 on what God intended in the very beginning, and it gives us a clue, okay? But like everything else in the scriptures, if we go back into the Old Testament, we find the early seeds planted 
about what God desires. And then we have the fall and it gets all messed up. So all throughout the summer, I've been going to Leviticus to start my discussion. I'm not going to go there today other than to say this. Leviticus doesn't say a lot about marriage, but it sure says a whole lot about fidelity and who you should not be with and why. And what God is doing, remember, they've only been out of Egypt for just a very short period of time. They're sitting at the base. I keep pointing over here to give you a picture, the base of Mount Sinai. And they're getting ready to go into this really pagan area. Well, they came out of one, but they're going into another one. And he says later on, don't do what they did where you came from, and don't do what they're doing where you're going to. And so he gives them boundaries on what makes a healthy relationship. Don't sleep with this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, and this person. And he defines it very clearly. So the only person that's left is your wife. Now, that may make sense to us 2,000 years after the cross where the church has been teaching this, but that was, not, that was strange to them. Because when they went into the land of Canaan, you know what? All the nations practiced the very things that God said, don't do these things. They were very promiscuous. And so Leviticus lays down the boundaries, but it's not till we get to the New Testament, especially with Paul and some of Peter, where we begin to understand what really makes a marriage a gift. What makes it a gift? And wait two weeks for you singles. You're going to hear it there too. What happens with singles? And so in Ephesians, we have this fabulous, fabulous passage, which drives everybody nuts. Because this is what you hear. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Almost every wedding I do now, I ask permission from the bride and groom to give it to me. And here's what I tell them. When I get to the reading of the verse, somebody comes up to read. I turn off my mic and I say, okay, turn around and watch the group. Watch how many of the eyes roll. When you hear this verse, why submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord? Okay. And they, they're prepared now because we've worked through it. And so now they're excited to watch their friends think and be challenged in a different way. You see, this isn't the beginning of the section. It's the verse before. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's not even the beginning because the beginning comes a little bit earlier. Do not be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This is talking to the church. Now, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, forgive me for being just a little bit technical. I'm not usually technical up here. But in the Greek language, they had, we do in English as well, we have two different ways of understanding this word filling. You can fill a bucket with a hose or you can fill a bucket with water. One is talking about the means that you do the filling and the other one is talking about the content. Okay? Most of you, when I read this verse, you think of let the church be filled with the spirit content, but it's not. It's the opposite. Let the spirit do the filling. And then you think, well, what, are, what is it we're being filled with? Well, this is what the next few verses tell us. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's one. This is what a church that's filled with the spirit looks like. 
Speaking, um, singing and making music, there's two things right there, two more participles. Singing and making music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks. There's the fourth one. And the fifth one is submitting yourself to one another. Okay. There's no way I can overstate to you how countercultural this one sentence is. Submitting to one another. In a world where still in the Roman Empire, various places, women were still conceived of as property. Not everywhere. It's beginning to change now at this time in history. But prior to this, women were considered property. And so what he's doing now at this place in this passage, he's saying, okay, this is what a church looks like that filled with the Spirit, these five things. Okay? The last one we're going to expand because it's the household. We're going to talk about husbands over wives, fathers over children, masters over slaves. So same man. You see, in the, at this time in history, the laws were designed to protect the male. They were. And to, re- and to keep order in the, f- the culture, and the way you do that is to keep order in the household. And so this whole next section is all about what's supposed to happen. But Paul does something very, very interesting here. He takes these rules right out of the first century. We call them the household codes. And he begins to change them. He changes some very important words. But here's the starting point. Submit yourselves to one another. As far as I know, nothing had ever been written that used that language. This is something brand new. Something brand new. And then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, you have to understand that the writings of the first century use the word authority and, and obedience. Wives, obey your husbands because they have authority over you. That was part of Roman law. That's why I think 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's navigating a very complex area. And he says, wives, do not speak in church as the law says, Ask your husbands at home. There's nothing in the Mosaic law about that. I think he's navigating a cultural law, a local law here about women couldn't couldn't do. So here he says, he changes the word obey to the word submit. That is very significant to me because obedience is a legal term. If you don't obey the police, you get a ticket. If you don't obey your boss, you get fired. And he replaces it with this beautiful, beautiful word submit. But it follows, submit to one another. And what this idea of submission means is it's now voluntary. Submission is something you do to appear. I'm going to put you first. 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 Because now we're peers. And you can see this undoing of what happened in the brokenness of culture. All the way back to Leviticus in the ancient world, the ancient nations. It's beginning to do this. So wives, do it gladly. Do it gladly. Because you want to. But then he doesn't stop there. Okay, that's the easy part. Then he goes on and he says, um, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay, and he introduces a brand new concept in marriage. Brand new of what God intended all along. It's called sacrifice. Sacrifice. What's one thing that Christ did in his own best interests? Nothing. 100% of what he did was for the church, his bride. This had never been stated prior to this passage. 
right here. And all of a sudden, we have marriage being returned to what God originally intended, a marriage that does this right here. What wife wouldn't want a husband who's going to sacrifice for her in every way? And so here's what culture has done with marriage. Marriage has become a contract, not a covenant. There's a huge difference. Covenant is a core part of our Christian theology where God says, I am going to save you. I'm going to fill you with my spirit because I love you. I'm going to do all this. I'm going to send my son. He's going to sacrifice his life for you. He lays all these things out that's going to happen because of his love for us. It's not a contract. You see, a contract is based on negotiation and compromise. That's how the world views a marriage. No, that's not it at all. That's a really, really poor, poor picture of marriage. And so what happens is that when you actually sacrifice for another person and you learn to do it more and more and more, that leads to true joy and what we consider to be peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict. That's simply detente. That's what peace is. The biblical concept of uh, uh, that's what the world thinks of peace. The biblical concept of peace, what we call shalom, is the the life-giving essence of what we are made to enjoy. It's rest on the inside. It's living at peace on the inside without conflict. It's life-giving. That's what the biblical concept of shalom is, and that's what the world cannot figure out when it comes to marriage. If your marriage is based on compromise and negotiation... That leads to detente, the absence of conflict. But you miss the whole point of it. If your marriage is put together so that you sacrifice for each other, joy is the result. Oh, sure, Nancy can ask me to take the trash out and I'd gladly do it. But what happens if I start looking so she doesn't have to ask? That's sacrifice. That's sacrifice. Which of you would not want to be with a spouse who begins to look out for your every need like Christ did? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see, this is the first clue of what a Christian marriage is, what the world can't see, is that we form marriages all throughout our church where each person in the marriage is looking for the opportunity to sacrifice for the other person. That's what makes it Christian. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. As long as Nancy and I are alive and married, and that'll be until we die, I'm going to continue to look for ways to sacrifice more and more because that produces joy for both of us. You get it? That's just one of the elements of a, of a Christian marriage. Only one. But it's something that the world cannot understand. They can't grasp it. Marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. Sacrifice leads to joy. Compromise and negotiation leads to, leads to detente. Where we just simply get along. And that describes the world. See how unique a Christian marriage is? 
But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just going to point out a couple of things here. Um, he says a little bit later, he says, uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's a, it's a referral back to Genesis 2. What reason? For this reason, what reason would he say that? The verse before, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their bodies just as Christ judged the church because we are members of his body. You see, what the body of Christ is all about is about sacrifice. I love you, so I'm going to put you first. I love you, and I'm going to put you first. I love you, and I'm going to put you first. I love you, and I'm going to put you first. This is what the body of Christ is supposed to be like because then we become a picture for all of the world to look at and they say, I want to belong to that group. They're not a social club. They actively actually, intentionally, purposefully, positively put each other first. So when one of you is in trouble, we all come running to your side. Let us help. Let us help. Let us help solve the problem. You want to love your neighbor? If they lose their job, pay their utility bill. Take it out of savings or retirement. Take them grocery shopping. Help them. We have a benevolence fund that I just love. I'm so proud of it. But don't wait for our benevolence fund. You want to be the body of Christ? You want to be Jesus to people? Then when your neighbor's in trouble, go running to their aid and you're going to see something in their eyes that they've never seen before. Shock, surprise. You're doing what? That's what generosity is all about. So for this reason... What? What's the reason? Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. You see, our marriages, and I'm going to argue something similar next week with our, uh, two weeks with our singles, but our marriages are one of our very first displays of our faith. Not only staying together, the world does that, half of them do, <laughs> and the other half don't. Not only staying together, but staying together in such a way that produces that deep joy because we're sacrificing, we're not negotiating. Big difference. For the definition of negotiation, a successful negotiation is when two people get part of what they want and are a little frustrated because they didn't get the rest of it. Who wants that in a marriage? I don't. That's why we stand out. And when we stand out and we build, we build Christian marriages that are truly Christian, where we sacrifice to one another, the world sees it. Because they don't know what it is. They've never seen it before. But then he goes on and talks about this concept of one flesh. That's one of the other elements that makes it unique. What in the world is one flesh? Well, it is physical, but the priority here in both Hebrew and Greek is on the one, the unity aspect. Oh, it is physical, but the world shares that. The world shares the same intimacy that we share with each other, the physical aspect. But here's the difference. Okay, here's the difference. One flesh that's based on sacrifice, you know what it produces? 
It produces intimacy. It produces transformation. But the one flesh that's based on contract and negotiation produces sex alone. And you know what that leads to? Hedonism and addiction. That's what it leads to. Every one of you, that aspect of your marriage, if your marriage is going to go away because you're going to age, it's going to disappear. And if that's all you've had for your whole life is contract, negotiation, compromise, then you're left empty. That's what the world was all about in Leviticus. All the nations. They were sleeping with each other, everybody. The metaphors that are used to describe the ancient nations are astounding at their immorality, their adultery, their lack of fidelity. And Israel was to be unique. That's why this passage is here. We are to be unique. One flesh leads to authentic and genuine intimacy. Something that the world cannot break. But if your marriage is based on contract and negotiation, tell you what, I'll cook if you take the trash out. I'll do this if you do that. I'll do this if you do that. How about, why don't you let me do both? When you start building that kind of marriage, then this one flesh concept moves way beyond the physical. In the absence of that, as I said, it leads to a form of hedonism and it leads to a form of addiction. And we wonder why pornography intervenes in about 90% of the men's lives in our country. We wonder why. That's the natural outcome of a marriage that's built the wrong way. I served on the board of an international mission for many years, and we, we started a pastoral care team. And they went out and interviewed the other missions that were larger than us. And one of the, uh, one of the biggest missions in the world, their pastoral care team came and met with us. They said, we do, uh, we do confidential surveys of all of our missionaries worldwide. We estimate that 62% of the male men are addicted to pornography. If we made that a requirement, we would bankrupt the mission. Why? It goes back to this concept right here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That is a Christian marriage. It's based on sacrifice. So if you get nothing else, just understand the concept. A Christian marriage is based on covenant, not contract. It's based on sacrifice, not negotiation and compromise. And that impacts every other area of the marriage. So I shared this with this young couple. I'm getting ready to marry. And they both just started laughing and looked at each other and said, I am more excited about marriage than I've ever been. We can do this. You see, you get two paths in life. Proverbs lays it out. You get the path of righteousness or you get the path of foolishness, what we call sin. Okay? This one delivers. Sin is fun. Let's be honest. If it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. Okay? It's fun in the short run. But as the scripture says, it's like honey in the mouth. It turns sour in the stomach. Before long, it begins to uh, turn bad. Never met an alcoholic that wanted to be an alcoholic when they started. This path over here takes longer and a much harder road to walk. But you know what? 
it leads to deeper and deeper joy. And that's what sacrifice is about. It's very hard to do that. You get two paths. You can take the path in your marriage toward detente, the absence of conflict where you just simply live together. That's where most marriages end up, in my experience. Or you can take the path of sacrifice, deep commitment, and joy begins to grow very slowly. I love our marriages that are 40, 50, 60 years old. Uh, Vossers, we just celebrated your 40th with a renewal. I mean, one 40-year renewal is worth 200 marriages because somebody made it. This path over here leads to much deeper joy, and it's a lot harder. Trust me, it's very hard to sacrifice for the other person continuously. But that's what Paul was talking about. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he says, I'm speaking, when he quotes the Genesis passage, he said, this is a profound mystery. Why? Because it's never been revealed and the world can't get it. That's what a mystery is. That's why he's explaining it. But I am speaking about Christ and the church. You see your marriage? Your marriage is a picture. Your marriage is a picture of what God intended all along and what he modeled through his son Jesus. The most incredible, sacrificial, deeply committed love that the world has ever seen. And that's what our marriages are to be like. And therefore, that's what our churches are to be like. If you're like that in your marriage, and this was Paul's argument here, that's why he took that last issue of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and brings it into the family structure. If your marriages are being built that way, trust me, the church is too. Because if you figured out how to be sacrificial in your marriage, you will naturally be sacrificial with each other. Does this make sense? It's a good time to nod, yes or no. A Christian marriage is very unique, something the world has never seen, but that the world hungers for. Who wouldn't hunger for a spouse that says, I love you so much, I'm going to do everything within my human ability to sacrifice for you and put you first? Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to belong to a church that says, welcome, what can we do to serve you, help you, love you, sacrifice for you? Sadly, the church in America has come to be known for its religiosity, its rules, its controls. But what did Jesus say? The new commandment I give you, that you love one another. All this will, uh, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have the right doctrinal statement. Everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have the best pastor. And we have the best pastor, let's be honest. Everyone will know that you're my disciples if you do communion the right way. No, what does it say? Everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And the very nature of that love is to sacrifice for someone else. That's what a Christian marriage is. Father, thank you for, thank you for your... First of all, your great example to us with your son Jesus of how much you love us. It means so very much to us. The more we study his love for us and his sacrifice, the more breathtaking it becomes. 
But at the same time, Lord, the more real it becomes because we can do that. Can we do it as well as he did? Absolutely not, but we can do it. Lord, I continue to pray, as do our elders and staff, that you would protect our marriages and our church because they are one of the fantastic signposts for the world to see your love and your sacrifice for us. And that's what we desire. We have so many friends and neighbors that we want to look. We want them to look at us and come to us. Help us, Lord. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who involves himself in each of our marriages. Use him well to help us learn how to build good marriages. We are grateful to be called your children. It's a privilege. Thank you. Your son's name. Amen.